But for some reason, it appears trusting in ourselves is a universal problem. Well, you'll find in our text this morning instructions that can penetrate through these false assumptions, uh, these false beliefs or these insecurities, however they apply to you. So today we get to do what uh, I hope we do weekly, which is return to the gospel as it is revealed to us in Scripture. Uh, Read along with me now from the book of Galatians, verses 10 through 14. Paul says this, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Before we go through this passage, let's pray one more time and ask uh, the Lord that we would understand his word rightly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you please bless the reading and the teaching of your word this morning? Would you illuminate our hearts and minds by your spirit, we pray, that we would behold your glory and be more like your son Jesus because of it. In his name we pray, amen. Uh, Well, our style of teaching here at FBC is what we sometimes call expositional preaching uh, because it seeks to expose the meaning of the text. Uh, So ordinarily, there are some exceptions. We just walk through passages or books like this, and I try to explain what it means and how it applies to our lives, and I like to provide some kind of main idea up front so that you know what this passage is all about. Well, this week, the main idea of this passage is the first half of verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Uh, That may not be very creative on my part, to just use the wording right there in the text, but when the Lord makes his word clear, we should never stray from it. Having said that, not all of these verses are easy to understand, Uh, so I'm going to do my best to help uh, walk through exactly what Paul is doing in these verses and why it matters. I think these verses are easiest to understand if we just take one idea at a time that Paul is communicating. Uh, So I see three main ideas going on in in these five verses. First, we're all cursed. First, we're all cursed. Second, we can't work our way out of this curse. We can't work our way out of the curse. And third, Christ redeemed us by becoming a curse for us. If you're a member of FBC here this morning, my prayer is that these verses would give you confidence in the inheritance that is stored up for you in heaven that can never be taken away. Nothing in this life can separate us from the love of God, as our brother Oscar prayed uh, just moments ago. If you're here this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself uh, to be a a Christian, first, thank you for joining us. Uh, We are so glad that you're here. You are always uh, welcome uh, to join us on Sunday mornings. I hope that this 
passage helps you understand the Bible and the Christian faith better. And I do hope that you would consider what the Apostle Paul has to say to you this morning. So let's dive in. Point one, we're all cursed. We're all cursed. That's what Paul communicates in verse 10 of this passage. He says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. And then he provides a proof text. He provides four proof texts in these five verses, by the way. Uh, for this occasion, the issue at hand is works of the law or adherence to the law. So Paul states that those who rely on that, works on the law, are under a curse. Now, he's, he's not saying that those who don't rely on the law are not under a curse. He's not limiting the curse to only people who, uh, who rely on the law. His point is simply that people treat the law as if it saves when in fact it doesn't. Those who go to the law for salvation, for merit before God, will never be able to find it. That's point two. Uh, But we're not there yet. For now, we're all cursed. Paul is simply saying that those who rely on the law remain under the curse. Uh, Paul does not mean to say anything other than that, that all humanity is under this curse. Now, let's say you wanted to check the time of day, and uh, like most people, you don't wear a classic watch anymore, or you have a digital one, uh, or you just use your phone. This is the easiest way to tell the time. And so you pull out your phone, or you look at your uh, watch to tell the time, but instead of looking at the clock, you look at the battery percentage. And from that battery percentage, let's just say it's 80%, you say, 80% is probably about 11 o'clock. Lunch is only an hour away. This is great. That battery percentage is giving you true and important information. It's a valuable thing. But if you don't understand the purpose of it, what it's supposed to communicate, then it's probably not going to go well for you, and you will likely miss your lunch meeting. Well, that's a little bit like uh, how some people approach the law. Uh, If we don't understand what its purpose is, if we go looking to the law for salvation or to make us righteous then it's not going to be useful to us. It gives us true information that is helpful for our knowledge of God and for ourselves, for our relationship with God. But that's not what it was. It was not given for us to kind of gain our own merit before God. That would be to misuse it. Only in the case of the law, there's never a chance that it'll work by coincidence. So what is this curse? Well, first, we should look to the first proof text that Paul provides to make his point. It's in the latter half of verse 10. He says this, For it is written, that just means he's quoting scripture, usually the Old Testament, For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Uh, This is a quote from the book of Deuteronomy, specifically Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. And this is a really important moment in the history of Israel. They have been freed from Egypt. They were brought to Mount Sinai. They were given God's law. They were judged in the wilderness. A generation died off, and now they're preparing to go back into the land. And that's where this verse comes from. When they pass over the Jordan, they are to ratify this covenant that God has made with them. And they do this uh, in an interesting way. God divides, instructs them to divide half of the 12 tribes on one mountain uh, and then half on another mountain, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. 
And when they do that, they're to do a kind of antiphonal chanting, which is basically one, one side, one mountain chants something, the other mountain responds. Uh, this is a powerful thing. Maybe you've experienced this in a, in a stadium, a sports stadium or something, where one side makes a chant, the other responds, and just the sheer volume of it is a powerful thing. Uh, well, that's what's going on. All, only instead of cheering on their favorite sport team, the nation of Israel has one mountain chanting curses if they disobey God's law and the covenant. And then the other mountain is responding by chanting blessings of obedience. Curses for disobedience, blessings for obedience. Why is this important? Well, because the verse that Paul quotes here, that he uses, is the final verse in the section that outlines the curses for disobedience. It's Paul's way of pointing to history to show that when the law was given to Israel, the terms of the covenant were that Israel must obey God in all that he commanded, and to disobey any of the commands was to break the law altogether. Now, Paul is relying on some common knowledge here when he makes this point. The common knowledge uh, that he doesn't even need to mention in this passage, uh, because it's so obvious, is that no one keeps the law. No one keeps the law. No one has ever abided by all things in the law except Jesus. Therefore, all are cursed. By pointing to this verse in Deuteronomy, Paul is proving that all lawbreakers are under a curse, all people. Now, perhaps you're thinking, now, wait a minute. This was Israel. This was between Israel and God. Uh, What does this have to do with me? Uh, Well, it's true that the example Paul uses speaks to Israel specifically, but he makes clear elsewhere in his writings that all are under a curse. He makes this point very clear in Romans when he points out that both Jews and Gentiles are under the wrath of God, even though Jews were given the privilege of the law to the Gentile, uh, whereas the Gentiles were not. Israel was supposed to be a nation of priests. They were supposed to be a nation that God used to bless other nations, to reveal the law to other nations. Well, this blessing would come from redemption from the curse that all humanity was under. That was one of their roles. We know that by going all the way back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis. Adam and Eve, they're placed in the garden. They have amazing fellowship with God. Uh, They are naked and unashamed until they eat from the forbidden tree. Guilt enters the world. They're aware of their sin and their nakedness, and they hide from God. And when God comes, he pronounces a curse upon the serpent, the woman, and the man. And to Adam specifically, he says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Then God expels them from the garden, and he places a guard at the gates, preventing them from returning. And Paul explains in Romans 5 that from one man's sin, referring to Adam, death and sin came to the whole world, the whole human race, making us all enemies of God. Now Paul says that through this one sin came condemnation to all men. Separation from God, deformity, 
sickness, pain, guilt, shame, judgment, hell. All of mankind is subject to the curse of sin and in desperate need of salvation. Paul says in Romans 2.12, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Friends, this is humanity's greatest problem, this curse. It is not world hunger or poverty or disease or climate or terrorism. It is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are deserving of His wrath. It's that no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. God, being perfectly just, will punish sin as it is deserved. So the question becomes, what will you rely on when you stand before God? What will you have to say? What case will you make for yourself that you should be accepted into heaven? It's not that those other problems in the world are small. I don't mean to imply that, but Scripture says that life is a vapor. Here one moment and gone the next, like grass that the wind takes away and no longer knows its place. Humans have an important stewardship here in earth still, but this life on earth is a speck of dust in the ocean compared with the sea of eternity. We were created to have a relationship with God, to bear His image to the rest of the world, to represent Him, and therefore to break His law is to commit cosmic treason against the Creator of the universe. To be under the curse of sin is to be under the wrath of God. And if breaking God's commands puts us under a curse, then all we have to do is obey the commands, right? Well, that brings us to point two. Point two, we can't work our way out of the curse. We can't work our way out of the curse. This is what Paul's demonstrating in verses 11 and 12. Uh, Simply obeying the law does not reverse the curse. It does not free us from our punishment. It does not erase the sins of the past. Uh, We tend to think of obeying the law as like this super spiritual extra thing. If, If you can do this, then you're doing well. But it's not that at all. It's what is expected of all mankind. Therefore, following it is not something special. It's what should have never been departed from in the first place. Remember how I said Paul is assuming some common knowledge that all people break God's law. Well, it matters for this point as well because another piece of common knowledge that Paul is assuming his readers, his audience understands is that even if we tried our hardest, we could never possibly keep the law. Even if we tried our hardest, we could never possibly keep the law. Now, it wouldn't matter if we could, because we're born into sin already, but we couldn't even keep God's commands if we tried. This is why I always say it's a good thing that salvation is not based on the law, because every day would be a battle for assurance. I would go to sleep with anxiety, wondering if I would have the chance to repent before dying. Jesus once said, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. James says, if anyone keeps the whole law but fails at one point, 
He is guilty of breaking it all. So just like Paul's proof text from Deuteronomy 27, 26, we could never keep the law if we tried, and it doesn't matter if we've only broken it one time. And we've done much worse than that. <laughs> we've broken it many times. Uh, but for the sake of the argument, even if that were the case, we would still be guilty. That's why the Bible says that the, the law brings condemnation, because it makes us aware of our sin. It condemns us. Let's pretend for a moment that you could perfectly obey the law. Paul says in verse 11 that it doesn't matter. Notice he says, it's evident that no one is justified by the law. Justified is the same word for made righteous. It is evident. It's obvious. We know this to be true. And this is where Paul then provides two more uh, proofs from Scripture to back up this statement. The first one is a prophecy from Habakkuk 2, verse 4. It says, The righteous shall live by faith, plain and simple. Uh, except it's not just that the words overlap, but the prophet Habakkuk is speaking about how the righteous person will cling to the promises God made, patiently awaiting fulfillment. Uh, Paul's use of this prophecy in particular is a way of showcasing that the promises made to Israel in the prophets, have now been fulfilled in Christ, with the Gentiles receiving salvation through their faith. Uh, one helpful question when you're reading the Bible and trying to understand, when you come across quotations like this, is why would they quote this particular verse? Why would Paul quote from a prophet and not elsewhere in the Bible? Uh, and to that, I would simply say that the location of this quote in the Bible teaches us two things. First, that the prophet in his day was looking forward to a new era of salvation, in salvation history rather. Meaning the prophet is communicating judgment to the people. This is why he was bringing them a word from the Lord. The kingdom is falling apart uh, in the context of Habakkuk. It's about 100 to 200 years before uh, the Babylonian captivity. So the kingdom's already divided. Uh, it's not going well. He's warning them of judgment to come and then speaks of hope to follow that judgment, and that's what Paul is quoting here. Habakkuk is using live here when he says the righteous shall live by faith in an eschatological, an end times eternal sense. Those who have faith in the promises of God will live eternally, will have eternal life. So the first thing we learn is that by using Habakkuk, he's pointing that that new era that Habakkuk talked about has, been, uh, has, has happened in Christ. It has arrived. The second thing by bringing uh, up this example of Habakkuk, this location in the Bible, bringing up this judgment on God's people, Paul is reminding his readers of how things have gone with the law in the past. Habakkuk said these things because Israel was disobedient, because the law did not save them. This quote from a prophet looks backwards and shows, therefore, that the law has never justified or made anyone righteous. So the law didn't work before Habakkuk came around. The law wouldn't work after he came around. Rather, the righteous would live by faith, belief, not in anything, but in someone. And that someone is God himself. 
in the very Messiah that would come to redeem sinners. It is trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross. The law and everything in it are meant to point us to the one who can save us from the curse that we're under. But the law itself was never meant to accomplish that. Now, this idea of living by faith is not unheard of, uh, as the idea is found not only in the prophets, but even all the way back to Leviticus, which is the second uh, verse that Paul quotes here in verse 12. He says, The law is not of faith, as if to answer the objection isn't following the law, an exercise of faith, isn't someone exercising their faith when they follow the law. And Paul is just trying to separate those two things. If you compare, well, look again at verse 12. But the law is not of faith. The law is not from faith, in other words. It is something else entirely. You can follow the law without faith. Faithlessly. Paul's trying to separate those two things. Now compare verses 12 with verse 10. You see the problem. Those who rely on the law live by the law, but the law is not from faith. And only faith justifies. Therefore, those who rely on their works of the law are not justified. All of this points to the fact that we simply cannot improve our standing before God on our own. No amount of good works or good deeds or law observance will reward us with salvation. It's not of faith. And only faith justifies No one is justified by the law. Uh, The reformer Martin Luther had much to say on this topic, uh, including this. Trying to be justified by the law is like counting money out of an empty purse, eating and drinking from an empty dish and cup, looking for strength and riches where there is nothing but weakness and poverty laying a burden on someone who is already oppressed to the point of collapse, trying to spend a hundred gold pieces and not have even a pittance, not even having the smallest amount. We spin our wheels in the mud, so to speak, when we try to rely on our good deeds to save us. When we're confident in our works rather than our need for Christ, We try to climb a ladder that does not exist. We pull a cord for a backpack that has no parachute inside. That's how desperately we need Christ. That is how hopeless we are apart from his grace in our lives. So what are we to do? If we're all under a curse and we can't do anything ourselves to remove that curse, how is anyone saved? That's the question that takes us to point three. But before we get there, a few points of application. First point of application, fix your eyes on Jesus and not on yourself. Fix your eyes on Jesus, not on yourself. We're prone to look to ourselves for assurance. We're prone to trust in our own strength. We're prone to think highly of ourselves. But the saving faith that looks is faith that looks to the works of another, not to the works of yourself. Last week, we looked at how Paul highlighted the role of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the Galatian Christians, not just in conversion, but in their lives through their growth as well, through their sanctification. 
that's where many Christians today, I think, wrongly trust in their own works. Uh, So let me just ask you to help you determine whether or not you do this. I know I do at times. What is your primary battle plan for fighting sin? Think about a particular sin you want to defeat in your life. What is your primary plan of action? How do you intend to grow in your walk with Christ? Is it to simply try harder? Is it to read your Bible more, which keeps on just not happening for whatever reason? Is it to avoid temptation, to have a reliable accountability partner? Uh, These are all good things, and I would encourage you to have them. Uh, But I would say they're secondary things that we often then point to to blame when we fall short. They're all grasping for the wind apart from the Spirit's work in your life. I submit to you that your primary battle plan for fighting sin or growing in Christ must be first to rely on Christ's work in you. Recognize that it is He who changes us from the inside and makes growth possible. Growth is not possible apart from His work in you and His work begins at the cross. So we must begin by looking at the cross. Fix your eyes on Jesus, not on yourself. A second point of application is for parents in the room. I think there is some comfort in knowing that we're all under a curse when it comes to the special burden of rearing children, which Luther called little heathens, by the way, that the Lord had given him. Your child's misbehavior and shortcomings are not all your fault. Uh, They're most likely not not because of your bad parenting, uh, though we may all be tempted to think that at times. Our children are sinners born under the same curse that we are. If they don't know Jesus, their lives will continue to be ruled by sin. So we shouldn't be surprised or discouraged when the sin we know is in their hearts makes itself evident. My encouragement to you this morning is this. Don't just stop at correcting bad behavior, sinful behavior. Use those times of correction as opportunities to point your kids to the eternal realities of sin and the freedom that comes in Christ. Use those opportunities, not to emphasize works, but to emphasize the gospel, freedom in Christ. That takes us to point three. Christ redeemed us by becoming a curse for us. Verses 13 and 14. This is exactly the way Paul says it in verse 13, that Christ became a curse for us, and he says it, Uh, in different ways in other letters of his. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He knew no sin, and he became sin. In him we become the righteousness of God. Christ became our curse. We became his blessing, his righteousness his good standing before God. This is the sweet exchange. The very heart of the gospel is this, that we're 
all saved by grace through faith in the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus. We cannot redeem ourselves. We can only be redeemed. We can't cause ourselves to be born again. We cannot resurrect ourselves from the dead. Only God can. We cannot fill ourselves with the Holy Spirit. Only He can make His home in our hearts. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that we have an advocate, the man, Christ Jesus. We have one willing to lay His life down as a ransom for us before God the Father so that we can be saved. Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, presents His own body as a sacrifice before the Father to atone for our sins. Christ's redemption is what the sacrifices of the law and the whole law pointed to. That's why to try to gain your own righteousness or your own righteous standing before God by practicing the law will always fall short. The time of the law was, has given way to something far greater, the real thing, the thing the law pointed to, to Jesus himself. So friend, if you're here this morning and you would not call yourself a Christian, I want you to understand this. Most faiths or worldviews require you to do something, require you to better yourself in some way to try to achieve some kind of state of happiness or state of blessedness. But the gospel is different. The gospel proclaims that we can't do anything in ourselves. The gospel proclaims that Christ has done it for us. We only receive salvation by believing in His works and not our own. Oh, if you have never considered this great act of love and mercy by Jesus on the cross, consider His love and sacrifice for you, and consider turning from your sin and putting your faith in Him. I promise you, He will not let you down. You will let yourself down. Others will let you down. But Christ will never let you down. How do we know that Christ's death was intended to be taking on a curse, absorbing death for us? He didn't break the law yet, and yet cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That's Paul's final Old Testament quote. It comes from Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. Uh, uh, one time I was traveling with a friend on a work trip who happened to be ethnically Jewish uh, and a professing believer, and he just happened to sit next to uh, a secular Jew. Uh, so they had uh, some good bantering back and forth uh, just about their shared heritage in being Jewish. And somehow, I don't remember exactly how, but the conversation, my friend was very good at this, got to Jesus. And uh, so inevitably, they were having this discussion, and of course, the secular Jew uh, did just, just did not buy that Jesus was the Messiah or that his death meant anything. They agreed Jesus was historical. They agreed that he died on the cross. All of these seemed to be irrefutable historical facts. But he simply said, I just don't think that the Messiah would ever be cursed. Paul was right when he said that preaching Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews. The idea that the Messiah would be killed in such a barbaric way was a scandal. And given their shared acceptance of the Old Testament, uh, though he was a secular Jew, my friend opened the Bible to these verses, Galatians 3, verses 13 and 14. 
And then he flipped to Deuteronomy 21 and 23 to say, look how clear it is. Jesus died to take the curse for us. The blessing of Abraham is realized in Jesus. It was an amazing model and inspiration for me evangelistically. (laughs) It stuck out to me. Uh, Well, the secular Jew didn't care very much for the New Testament quote. But ever since then, these verses have always stuck out to me as one of the most direct explanations of Jesus fulfilling the law and the prophets in Jesus' substitutionary death for us. Redemption is a beautiful theme in Scripture. The word redeem, uh, usually used in a kind of financial context, speaks to paying a debt that's owed. And the theme in the Bible harkens all the way back to the time that God redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt. In the case of Jesus, to redeem means to free us from the bondage of the law. It's to pay the just and full penalty, the wages that our sin had accrued to release us from the curse of sin. Christ is our great Redeemer because He became a curse for us. And Paul concludes these arguments with two different so-that's in verse 14. Why did Jesus redeem us? By becoming a curse for us, first so that, so that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Remember, Paul's writing to the Gentiles. He's writing to Christians in Galatia, Roman province. The curse was a removal of this blessing, which is the case for everyone trapped under the curse of sin. Sin cuts us off from God, making us enemies of God. It's the very opposite of that famous blessing given in Numbers 6. You probably know it. It goes like this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now imagine if that blessing was turned into a curse. This is what it would sound like. And this is the result of sin. The Lord curse you and abandon you. The Lord make his face turn away from you and be stern with you. The Lord frown upon you and give you unrest. It's terrifying, isn't it? That's what the curse of sin does. That's where rebellion and disobedience to God positions the world. But God being rich in mercy and love sent his Son to be the propitiation for us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, Paul says in Ephesians 2, and this is not a result of works, so that no man may boast. Christ redeemed us from the law by becoming a curse for us. And brothers and sisters, if this is the fulfillment of the blessing of Abraham from Genesis 12, 3, where he promised Abraham to bless the nations through him, through his descendants, then Christ is plan A, And there is no plan B. Christ is plan A. All of history and all of the Bible point to Him. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the first so that. 
Paul gives a second so that in verse 14. The other reason Paul says Christ redeemed us for was so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. It's the other side of the same coin. I don't think Paul's describing two different things here. The blessing of Abraham is the reception of the Spirit and vice versa. The reception of the Spirit through faith is evidence or proof of being declared righteous by God through faith. Paul pointed to the evidence of the Spirit in the lives of the Galatians in the first five verses of chapter 3. And, and, and this is the conclusion. If you've received the Spirit, you have been declared righteous before God through your faith in Christ. Something that the Galatians would have already experienced. Therefore, they did not need works of the law, and neither do we. In his other letters, Paul refers to the Holy Spirit as the seal and guarantee of our inheritance. So how can we apply these verses to our lives? Two points. We must routinely relearn the gospel. We must routinely relearn the gospel. We must regularly teach ourselves that we are saved by grace through faith and not works. Works should flow from a desire to serve Jesus out of love for him because of what he's done for us. But they should not be done in order to gain love from him, not in order to prove ourselves to him. Christian, you did not redeem yourself and you cannot sanctify yourself. This is one of the reasons I think Jesus created the local church, so that we could be a community that is constantly reminding each other of the gospel. Second point of application. Trust in the work of the cross over your feelings. Trust in the work of the cross over your feelings. I say that because sin is powerful. I will, it will routinely try to convince you that you need to do more. It'll try to convince you that God has, in fact, turned his face away from you. We have been declared righteous by God through faith in Jesus, but we're not actually righteous. We are a work in progress. We still live in a world that is cursed, so sin will continue to have an effect in our lives. But faith reminds us what Christ has done for us. Therefore, we must resist feeling condemned and abandoned. This was a great struggle for Martin Luther, who I've already quoted. And in this struggle, he said this, Even though I feel myself completely crushed and swallowed by sin, and see God as a hostile and wrathful judge, yet in fact, this is not true. It is only my feeling that thinks so. The word of God, which I ought to follow in these anxieties rather than my own consciousness, teaches much differently. Namely, that God is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed spirit, and that he does not despise a broken and contrite heart. Our Lord does not change. Our feelings and our circumstances do. But in those times we must trust in the work of the cross over our feelings. To sum up this passage, Paul's reminding the Galatians of the gospel 
reminding them that Christ redeemed them from a curse, not their works of the law, so that their faith, so through their faith, rather, they are declared righteous by God, not by their good deeds. Our salvation is by grace through faith alone. And no, faith is not a a kind of work. Uh, This objection is brought up routinely. One commentator helpfully said it this way. Faith is a needy cry for God, while works try to impress God. Faith is a hand reaching out for help, while works insist that no help is needed. Faith trusts that God alone can accomplish salvation, while works smuggle in human effort and cooperation. So, brother and sister, in what ways are you tempted to trust in your own works today? That might be a good question for you to discuss with others after the service. In what ways are you tempted to rely on your own works rather than on Christ? Look at the cross, dear friends, and see the man that was made a curse for us so that we might be redeemed. And then ask yourself, whatever have I done to gain the favor of God? Faith is described in many ways in the Bible. But one of my favorites is the way that Jesus describes it when he called those who are weary to come to him. He described it as rest. Rest from trouble. Rest from the burden of striving to do good. Rest from anxious thoughts about the judgment of God. Rest from the curse. Christ redeemed us from the law by becoming a curse for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise this morning. Because in love you provided a way for us to be made clean. You provided a perfect sacrifice on our behalf and your very son, Jesus. Lord, we pray that by your spirit, you would help us to keep our eyes fixed on the cross and not on our own works. Help us to exercise a needy faith, a faith that trusts in the work of your Son and not in our own efforts. We pray that you would remind us of the profound sacrifice of your Son, Jesus, as we partake in the Lord's Supper this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.